Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, okay. So before I get started here, I wanted to encourage you uh, to be praying uh, for your church. I cannot remember another time when we've had more people sick for longer all at the same time. It's been crazy. I got sick on, on Christmas morning. In fact, when I was preaching, my, my voice cracked like a 14-year-old because I was getting sick, right? And then I was in bed for a week, and now my wife and kids are sick, and so many other people are as well. So uh, be praying for, um, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, and remember uh, that these are opportunities to be the church and maybe pick up chicken soup from Lourdes, the best <laughs> chicken. Pick some up for yourself as well and take it to whoever it is that you know is sick so they can be here next Sunday. Sound good? (laughs) All right, so we are continuing our uh, series um, on the life of King David, and now we come to an infamous chapter in 2 Samuel. It is chapter 11, and it's about David and Bathsheba. Now, here's the thing, especially in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament, the Bible uh, is incredibly, blatantly, brutally honest about the sin of its heroes. The Bible does not dance around the issue of their moral failures. In fact, it seems to shine a spotlight on the moral failures of its heroes. The scriptures do not gloss over, you know, these, these, these sins, whatever they are, as just some personal, private matter. Not at all. Now, just think about the bad press that David and Bathsheba have received. Now, there no other sin other than maybe the sin of, of Adam and Eve and uh, the murder of Jesus has got more attention. You know, you ask, you ask people uh, who have heard of King David, and you know, what, what do you know about him? If they don't mention Goliath, they will almost certainly mention Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba. It is a, uh, a picture. When we read their story, it is a picture of the power of sexual desire. You know what? Sexual desire is far more powerful than you think it is. Far more powerful than you think it is. There's a Nobel Prize winning author by the name of Francois Murriac, and he describes the power um, of sexual desire this way when he says that the sexual act has no resemblance to any other act. Its demands are frenzied and participate in infinity. It is a tidal wave. Now, God gave sexual desire to be a good gift and a powerful blessing. Misuse of that good gift brings powerful regret and heartbreak. It can ruin the gift. It can ruin you. It can ruin other people. So here's our plan for this morning. 
We're going to walk through the story. Uh, I'm going to throw out about seven short scenes of the story. We'll try to understand what's going on and then draw out some critical lessons that I think will help us cherish sexual desire and keep us from misusing it and having it ruin us, all right? There's a lot to cover here, so let's get started. Here's the setup. The story begins with these words. It says, in the spring. There's another translation. It puts it this way. Then it happened in the spring. Now, commentators say that that the author is communicating that it was just another day in Jerusalem when disaster hit. No one expected it, especially not David and Bathsheba. Here's the deal. When it comes to sexual sin, when it comes to sexual sin and its fallout, it happens on ordinary days. You don't see it coming. Temptation suddenly just hits you when when you least expect it. But also, sexual sin never just happens. David didn't just suddenly fall into sexual sin out of nowhere. For him, it involved a gradual breakdown of integrity. Now, we can see what what led up to this night that that turned David's life in the the wrong direction. And the first step that we see is um, polygamy. Now, that doesn't sound very relevant to us here, right? I think it's more relevant than we might think at first. Now, back in the, the book of Deuteronomy, God gives specific rules to kings, and one of them was this strong warning against multiple wives. And David failed miserably. When he took the throne, he added wives and more wives, concubines and more concubines. The man who took another man's wife, Bathsheba, had a harem of women. And as his harem grew, his passion did not decrease. You need to know that lust is not decreased by giving in to the lust. It's increased. You don't get it out of your system. It doesn't work that way. It intensifies. And David tried to satisfy his lust by having more women. He tried to satisfy his sexual drive in a sinful way. And his lust points to our lust. His sin points to our sin. Whenever we lust, you need to know that the truth is that we are polygamists at heart. Next step, vulnerability. Vulnerability, you need to know, is often rooted in pride. In the six chapters leading up to this one, we see one success after another. There were military victories. There was public admiration. There was the, the, the amassing of, of, of riches and wealth, the growing in power, growing in fame. David is on a roll. He is riding high. Pride is taken over, and now he is dangerously vulnerable. Now, we, we must be constantly vigilant. Here's the thing. We got to be vigilant in tough times and good times. 
Now, in tough times, I mean, you could be really vulnerable because it can be so easy to justify sin in the name of relief. Like, I need this. I don't know if I'm supposed to do it, but I need this. That is rooted in pride. I decide what's good for me. But also, when things are going great, we might need to be even more vigilant. When we're, when we're riding high and we're getting pats on the back or we're patting ourselves, you know, on the back, pride sneaks in under the radar and we become especially vulnerable because we don't think that we are vulnerable. We drop our guard. And then step three, indulgence. Our selfishness leads us by the nose into destructive indulgence. Look at the beginning of the story again. It says this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained in Jerusalem. Now, David is not, you know, delegating his responsibilities here. He is abdicating his responsibilities. He's blowing it off. He lost sight of his calling to be a king that served God's people. He should have been with his loyal uh, men in battle, not with the wrong woman in bed. But nothing else mattered to him other than, you know, he wanted what he wanted. When we fall, it's usually because it's usually wrapped up in the fact that we, we lose sight of our calling. Maybe, maybe we're even serving God, and then serving God and others gets difficult, and so we lust for comfort. We long for relief, and so we duck out, and, and then we embrace leisure, like, like leisure is our calling, and then we wander into selfish indulgence. And this is especially true of sexual sin. It doesn't just happen. It's an integrity breakdown. That's the setup. Scene two, the sin. It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Now, you need to know this was a common practice, and, and besides, you know, Bathsheba wasn't tempting uh, King David. There's no evidence of that. In fact, uh, as far as she knew, King David should have been not there, should have been out to battle, all right? That's just something to keep in mind. Now, when David noticed Bathsheba, when he happened to notice her bathing, he didn't sin at that moment. He didn't even sin when suddenly he was struck with, wow. Like, but taking a step back, God created sexual desire to be a good thing. We learned that from Genesis 2, Proverbs 5, Song of Solomon, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Need me to repeat those so you can add them in your notes? Bible, it's actually, it's from cover to cover. This good thing becomes sin when it becomes lust. And this is how it starts with David. He doesn't just look, oh. He stops. He stares. He fantasizes. He forgets his faith. He forgot who he was. He gambles his future. He acted as if God 
was not real. She covets, she lusts, she's selfish. Verse 3. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one of the servants says, Is this not Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? All right. We got to talk about what lust is, right? And I'll mention three things. In fact, we get an idea from just this short little conversation here. Lust is desiring pleasure outside of God's boundaries. Now, one of the most common illustrations is a good illustration. That sexual desire is like a fire. And as long as fire is in the boundaries of a fireplace, it is safe and good. Real good. As long as it's in the fireplace. If the fire jumps out of the fireplace, it's panic time, right? Because it's dangerous. Destruction is at hand. I mean, even if it's just a spark, you better take action and stomp it out, right? Also, lust is desiring pleasure without a promise. Now, when the servant says, hey, isn't this Uriah's wife? What he's saying is, hey, this is not your wife. She's off limits. See, the essence of marriage is a covenant. It is a public promise. And throughout the Bible, marriage is a binding promise that brings a man and a woman together in an exclusive, permanent, until death do us part relationship. And sex is designed to be enjoyed only within the covenant of marriage. Now, why is that? Is that because God's just trying to think up ways to be a party pooper? Is it just random? Why is it? Well, you know what? I think we can learn a little bit more about this if, if, if we look at a couple of, of important but often overlooked and undervalued purposes of sex. One is immediate, and the other one is ultimate. The immediate purpose is that it's a sign of and a means by which complete unity of life is expressed. That's why when the Bible records the institution of marriage, it says back in Genesis 2, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 not to have sex with a prostitute. Why? Because she's a sex worker? That's not really the point. It's because that kind of sexual relationship is with someone outside of the covenant of marriage. And we all, I think, if we stop and think about it just for a second, we know down, deep down in our soul how important this really is. That's why, that's why faithfulness between a husband and a wife, when we see it or when we experience it, it's inspiring to us. Or that's why cheating, whether you see it or experience it, 
is so destructive and devastating to us. It is crushing. Sexual oneness must be reserved for marriage or it destroys the blessing and it destroys us. And third, lust is desiring pleasure without the person. And what I mean is that the person has become an object that just exists to satisfy your desires. Not a person. You know what? David didn't love Bathsheba. Not at all. I mean, look what the text says. The text says David sent and inquired about the woman. He does not even know who she is. He doesn't love her. He loved her body. And he wanted to use her to gratify his lust. He did not see her as a person created in the image of God. So, God makes good rules for gracious reasons. We don't always understand why he says to do something and not do other things, but we know that it's for our good and his glory. The story goes on, verse 4. So, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and she lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now, throughout centuries, a lot of people have come to a lazy assumption that Bathsheba was asking for it, that she knew what she was doing. But commentator after commentator say there is no evidence of that. In fact, as far as she knew, David was, was, was out to battle. You need to know that she is more of someone who is sinned against. David, again, he didn't notice and go, oh, and then, no, he lingered. King David become, became a peeping Tom. And then the text says that, look at this, David sent, King David sent his messengers and took her. It doesn't say he invited her. The law of the land forced her to obey the king's command. This was not about two consenting adults. So here's the thing. Side note, if you are in any kind of position of authority whatsoever, you must not abuse that power. It destroys people. I mean, you as a leader, you have a greater responsibility for your own behavior and also the behavior of the people that you're supposed to be serving. So you need to know that judgment is severe for people who abuse that trust and abuse that power. David abused his authority. And I'm sure he enjoyed every minute of it. Isn't it great to be king? You know, the Bible is so honest about the pleasure of sin. It describes it as the passing pleasures of sin, but then the consequences start to surface. And here in the story, you know, a month or two passes, certain signs become obvious. Bathsheba's late. She has morning sickness. 
Then the secret's out. And word comes to David. Bathsheba's pregnant. Verse 5. And Bathsheba conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Here's the deal. Temptation always, always, always downplays the consequences of sin. Temptation doesn't try to, to warn you about addiction or overdose or, or sexually transmitted disease. It doesn't try to warn you about, you know, the heartache or the emptiness or the, the self-loathing, the, the chain reaction that, that leads to the destruction of, of relationships, the destruction of your life, the destruction of the lives of others in your life. And at this point here in this story, David has two options. And that is either fess up or cover up. Now, he could have called his advisors, his counselors. You know, he could have told them what he had done. He could have asked forgiveness from God, from Bathsheba, from, from uh, you know, the rest of Uriah's family, from, from the nation. But David chose option two. Ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, we instinctively want to cover up. This is, this is not just King David. This is all of us. And this is what David does next, scene three, the lie. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David, called him off the battlefield. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Small talk, I guess. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house. And there followed him a present from the king. Now, do you see the plan here? David's not just saying, hey, you should go home and wash your feet. Right? He sends Uriah home to enjoy being with his wife. David's thinking, you know what? If I can get Uriah to go to bed with his wife, everyone will think that this baby will be his and I'm off the hook. And it would have worked, too, if it wasn't for Uriah and God not cooperating. They did not cooperate with David's plan. So Uriah goes to King David, gives his report on the battle, and then King David sends him home with presents like food and wine because David is just so delighted with Uriah, wants to let him know he's doing such a good job. And David is setting the stage for Uriah to spend a nice evening with his wife, Bathsheba. But, verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, 
The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and, and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This dedicated soldier could not bring himself to rest or enjoy being home with his wife when his fellow soldiers were camped in a battle zone. In fact, part of the consecration for the soldiers before going into battle was to take a vow to abstain from sex with their wives until the battle was over. I'm not sure why, maybe to motivate them to hurry up and win and get back home. I have no idea, but that's what they did. Now, David must have felt convicted, right? I mean, Uriah was this, this man of integrity, right? Man of respect, uh, uh, loyal to his God, loyal to his king, loyal to his people. And you know what? Through Uriah's example, God is patiently calling David to repent, but David completely misses it. He is cold, he is calculating, and he is cruel. He moves to plan B. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made Uriah drunk. David's thinking, all right, now that I got him drunk, he can't resist going home to his wife. And even if he doesn't sleep with her, I mean, he'll be too drunk to remember if he did or not. I got all the bases covered now. But Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Verse 13. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But Uriah did not go down to his house. Now, David had love and respect uh, for the, his loyal soldier, Uriah, at some point. But it is now being replaced with hatred, fear anger, he moves to plan C, and he basically says, even if I have to sacrifice the lives of my loyal friends and soldiers, I will do what I got to do to cover the truth. And that leads to scene four, the murder. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And then he gets Uriah to deliver that letter. That is crazy. Here's the thing. Continued sexual sin always requires 
the wrong kind of sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of loyalty, the sacrifice of relationship, the sacrifice of of respect, the sacrifice of the unborn, the sacrifice of friends, the sacrifice of families, the sacrifice of of your children and your fellowship with the Lord. David is willing to sacrifice the life of a loyal soldier for the cover-up. And you know what? Uriah is faithful. He is faithful to David and delivers the letter for David, having no idea what is in it. And not only is Uriah killed, but other soldiers who were with Uriah were killed also. Do you see the power of unconfessed sin? Before you know it, you're hurting people that you care about or used to care about. It is so destructive. Verse 16. And as Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant defenders of that city. And and the men of that city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants, some of the soldiers of David among the people fell And Uriah the Hittite also died. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. Scene five, the results. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Well, of course she's pregnant. She's my wife. David totally pulled this one off, right? I mean, he, he got exactly what he wanted. He got Bathsheba. What a stud, right? No one will ever know. He can just relax and move on. Maybe try better next time. We'll see how it goes. Verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David had overlooked one teeny tiny vital factor in his calculation. He thought that he beat the system. He didn't. The story continues, and the story gets darker. David's one-night stand became a, a living nightmare of pain, and not just for him. I mean, in just a few moments, he corrupted his character. He endangered his kingdom. He destroyed his family. He dishonored God. Now, at this point, we have to look at a handful of lessons on lust that that apply to to all of us. And you know what they are? These are really just gracious warnings, right? And then we'll look at the solution. Here are the lessons. First is this. Not a single one of us is immune to sexual sin. 
Remember, this is David. This is a man after God's own heart. This is the man who wrote and sang the, the Psalms. No matter how blessed or used by God someone is, any one of us can fall hard into sexual sin. And you know what? I, you know what? It's so crazy. We are so blind to it. It is so easy to point the finger at others, especially in you know, political discussions, and never examine our own hearts. Never examine our own vulnerability. Never examine our, our, our own sin. I mean, if we did, we would be far more humble. And then, second lesson, sexual sin, just, it never just happens. What appears to be a, a sudden impulsive act is actually the result of, of a gradual breakdown in integrity. And sexual sin totally clouds our perspective. We lose sight of right and wrong. We lose sight of who we are. We lose sight of the consequences. We lose sight of God. And then our natural tendency is to cover up our sexual sin. Instead of coming clean and, and cutting our losses, we live a lie which only makes everything worse. But sexual sin can never be successfully covered up. Bible says your sin will find you out. And here's the thing. We hear that and we worry that other people will find out. That's legitimate, I guess. It's understandable, I should say. But our fear of other people finding out should pale in comparison that we've already been found out by God. And yet we live as if God doesn't even exist. Sexual sin is living on borrowed time. And finally, one night of pleasure can lead to years and years and years and years of heartache. We need to see how painful our moral failures and sin are. So we will, and if we don't see how painful our sin is or how destructive it is, we will never come to a place of valuing and longing for grace. And therefore, we will never experience heart and life transformation. Now, we, I know some of those are harder to hear than others or hit harder than others, but my desire here is, is, is one that is, is gracious. We need to understand the consequences. Now, I know some of you... Some of you might, might live with an endless struggle with lust, and, and, and you know, it's very likely you even hate it. And if you don't, you're coming to the conclusion you probably should. And wherever you are with that, it's, it's paralyzing your spiritual walk. And if you're not there now, hopefully soon you will be begging, crying out for a solution. Does this chapter give us a solution? Well, not explicitly, but I think it points us to one. Now, why in the world did Uriah not go home to hook up with his wife? Why didn't? I mean, they were married after all. I mean, did he want to go home and be with his wife? Of course he did. 
So why didn't he? How did he stay committed to his consecration vow? Now, here's the thing. I'll mention two strategies that can help, but then I'll, we need to talk about the ultimate solution. Strategy number one. Flee from temptation. Flee from it. Run from it. Don't assume that you're strong enough. Get out of there. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all of the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. He did not go home to Bathsheba. He didn't go home, walk in the door, and say, Hey, girl, I missed you so much, and you are so fine, but I'm going to go sleep on the couch. No way. He knew better than that. He knew how powerless he was over the power of sexual desires. That's why it is so wise and godly for unmarried Christian couples to not live together before they're married, no matter how convenient or economical it might be, because it's just not worth it. Uriah avoided the temptation. That's one strategy. Second one, enlist and accept, pursue accountability. Look again what it says. It says that, that he slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of, of, his, of his Lord. By doing that, he's saying to his friends, you know what, look at I intend to follow through on my, my vow, and I, I am definitely going to need your encouragement and accountability. Now, you can only really be as accountable as you want to be, but I strongly encourage you. One of the best things that you can do in response to God's word is ask a mature Christian friend that you respect to help you, to graciously help you with accountability. Now, those two things can help. They're helpful strategies, but they won't matter. Not without this. Not without the real solution of those two parts. First, we need a love and a loyalty to God that are stronger than our sexual desires. Now, again, let me, let me read this section again. David said to Uriah, um, why did you not go to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You know what? His response in the language that he uses, it is filled with a passionate determination. You know what he doesn't say? Yeah, I'd like to, but I made this stupid consecration vow. Now I'm stuck with it. I got to try to figure out some way to just say no. That's not what's driving you, Ryan. That's weak. His heart is filled with, with delight and a determined loyalty to his vow. Where in the world does that kind of heartfelt determination come from? Look at the first thing he says. The ark. The ark of the Lord. 
more than just a symbol. God dwelt in a special way with his people above the ark. Uriah, he had a passion for God, a passion for God's people, and, and, and a passion for the things of God. He has a love and a loyalty that is far greater than his sexual desire. And Uriah says, I will give you one good reason why I didn't go home. There's something even better, and I refuse to settle for less. Look, you cannot conquer lust by just saying no. Or, or, or maybe just doing some mind trick on yourself to convince yourself that, you know, sex is dirty. Look, you, you keep sex within its boundaries not by downgrading sex. That's dumb, and it doesn't work. You keep sex within its boundaries. You, you replace the controlling power of your sexual desire with even a greater desire, a more profound desire. Uriah has a strong love and loyalty to the king, and not just King David, but to the king that David points to, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, God, God, God sent a whole series of leaders to come and deliver God's people from their enemies to bring them into peace, like Moses and Joshua and Deborah and Samson and Gideon and David and many others. And you know what was common among all of them? They all failed. None of them could ever bring God's people into a lasting peace because like you and me, they too needed a deliverer. This right here is exactly why the scriptures are so blatantly, brutally honest about the Bible's heroes. He is driving us to look for that ultimate king who will not let us down, who will not and cannot fail us. And in some ways that we don't fully understand, Uriah saw King David's king. The scriptures say that, that the people of the Old Testament saw dimly what we see clearly. And you know what? It only took a glimpse. It only took that foreshadowing of Jesus for Uriah to become totally loyal to the king of kings with all of his heart. And here's the deal and the second part of the solution. We can see much more clearly because God sent us our true king to win our hearts and minds. A king that, that will never use his subjects to, to satisfy his selfish desires. A king who will never take advantage of those who trust him. A king who will never send soldiers off into battle while he indulges himself. Our true king went into battle alone. And he stormed the gates of the enemy. And he went to the cross and he gave up his life uh, to deliver us from the greater enemy of evil, death, and eternal judgment. And then our king also became our friend. When, when you can see your king and when you can know him, you will feel honored to follow him and you will have a strong drive to follow any orders that he gives you 
even when it comes to sexuality. I mean, he's earned that. Remember, I said there were two critical overlooked purposes of sex, one immediate and the other ultimate. What's the ultimate? In Ephesians 5, Paul's giving instructions to husbands and wives, and he starts by quoting Genesis 2, which we read earlier, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You know what? We fail so much at controlling our sexual drive because deep down what we really desire is so essential. We've been created to to know and be known, to love and be loved for someone that we love, to hear from someone that we love and respect, to know everything about us, including all the dirt, to see us just as we are, no hiding, and to hear them say, I love you no matter what. I love you just as you are, but I love you too much to let you remain as you are. Only, only Jesus can do this. Only Jesus can transform us. Only Jesus can cleanse us from our sin. And then his, clo- his righteousness becomes your righteousness. His holiness becomes your holiness. His strength becomes your strength. His loyalty becomes your loyalty. So my question for you this morning is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus lived for you, that he delivered you? Is that real to you? Is that real to you right here, right now? Let's pray that it is. And then let's live with great zeal to honor and obey King Jesus, by the grace of God. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, help us open our eyes so that we might see our desperate need for you and your grace. So often we don't value your grace. We don't value loyalty to you. We don't value glorifying you with our lives because we simply don't take our sin seriously or even see it. God, I pray that you would graciously give us eyes to see the sin in our own hearts. I pray that you would graciously convict us of that, knowing that you don't leave us there to wallow helplessly, but that you pick us up, that you restore us, you cleanse us. And by your grace, we can confess our sin, knowing that you are faithful and just, 
to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God, I, I pray that you would give us just hearts filled with a determined loyalty to glorify you with our lives. Even in the times when no one's looking. God, we need your healing. God, I especially want to pray for the people uh, in this room, whoever they are. I don't know who they are, but you people who've been violated, people who've been taken advantage of, people who've been abused, people who can't imagine uh, sex ever being something that could even come close to being considered a gift from God. I pray Bring healing to them. God, may they experience your grace. Make them aware of your presence and the unconditional love that you have for them. God, enable them to fix their eyes upon Jesus. God, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to develop us into a community of grace, a community that, that stands in stark contrast to a broken world that creates more brokenness. God, I pray, Lord, that you would use us to point people to you our true king. I pray these things in your name.